Welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Fatherhood Tribute. Amazing Grace. The following story is about living, loving, and the incredible adventure of starting and raising a family with modest means, great intentions, and the infinite resilience to see it all through. The reminder here is to stay alert, stay invested, and press on no matter what. You never know what tomorrow may bring. Come on, boy, get your coat. Come go with me. Can I, Ma? I looked longingly up from the living room floor at my mother, who was sitting in the adjoining room at the kitchen table, nursing one of my newborn twin baby sisters. All right, Bill, she warned, while peering intently at my father. Don't you keep my child out all night. I popped up from the floor like a jack-in-the-box. Oh, girl, you know I take care of Roger, my father answered back calmly. In seconds, I was standing in front of the door with my wool coat buttoned all lopsided. I was more than happy to make that run with my father. Daddy was buttoning his own coat as he walked toward me. I was smiling like a butcher's dog. Look here, boy. You got your coat all buttoned wrong. Let's straighten it out. He ought to know how to button his own coat by now, my mother barked. He needs to learn. Ignoring my mother, my father kept adjusting my coat. He finished and lifted my small collar around my neck and ears. I stuck my hands inside my coat pockets and stood lingering over the door. I'm certain my eyes and body looked eager to break out. Daddy walked over to the kitchen table and kissed my mother gently on the lip. 
I noticed his gesture and walked over to say goodbye to her, too. I pressed my lips gently against my mother's cheek. Bye, Ma, I said. Bye, she said sternly. I dashed out the front door and my father followed closely. The aluminum storm door squeezed closed behind us. We going over to Grosso's, he announced, smiling. Ooh, could I have some soda and potato chips? I asked. Sure, son. Daddy smiled. We'll get you some chips. I knew all too well where we were going. The bar only three blocks away from the Parkside Projects. Pop's favorite spot. It was fast becoming my favorite spot, too. As we walked along, you could hear the thin, hard layer of day-old, ice-cold snow crushing under our feet. The rhythm of our man and child cadence was echoing through the night. My father looked down toward me, tilted his head sideways, and smiled. I love you, boy. You know that? He expressed in an almost celebrational tone. I smiled big and answered within the cadence of our walking pace. I love you too, Daddy. He smiled back at me as we approached the entrance to Grosso's. Daddy pulled open the large, decorative brown wooden door and we walked through the portal. A burst of warm air hit us as we entered the dimly lit, cozy neighborhood bar. Hey, Bill. The heavy voice from behind the bar greeted his familiar patron and friend. I see you got your boy with you, he offered. Man, he's getting big. Yeah, he is, ain't he? My father answered proudly as he began unbuttoning my coat and nodding hello to some of the other men in the bar. I bet the corners of my mouth looked like they were hanging from my earlobes. I was smiling so big. I liked the idea that I, if I kept growing soon, I would be a man too like my pops. Daddy hung our coats and his characteristic checkered cap on the hook of the full coat rack in the corner. Gunsmoke was playing on the television as we both sat down in the high-legged stools at the end of the bar. Uh, give me a shot of V.O. and a Ballantine, my father ordered as he simultaneously pulled some paper money from the pocket of his khaki work pants. And give my boy an orange soda and some chips. I licked my lips in anticipation of my unexpected treat. I didn't say a word. My father even knew my favorite flavor. Grosso was a large Italian man with thick hairy forearms and jet black hair. He always wore a white button-down shirt with the sleeves rolled up to his elbow. Grosso began pouring the drinks and my dad stretched out a pile of bills on the glossy bar. Thank you, he responded happily. Thank you, I said politely as I eagerly reached for my drink with both hands. Grosso counted out the correct amount of dollar bills from the small stack. Here's to you, boy my father offered with his glass high in the air. I touched my glass gently against his. We smiled at each other. My pops downed his shot in one gulp. His face grimaced as he reached quickly for his beer and took a large swallow. I gulped too and we both responded simultaneously. <sighs> Give me another one, my father asked of Grosso who was hovering over him with a large bottle of VO still in hand. Grosso poured the small shot glass full and rested the bottle. Daddy and I sat back in our chairs and relaxed. We looked up at the screen as Marshall Dillon was telling Miss Kitty that she needn't worry. He could handle the Dawson brothers. Festus, the Marshall's scruffy, one-eyed partner, rolled his eyes and walked out of the saloon behind him. The screen faded to black and the commercial for Marlboro cigarettes jumped on the screen. Come up to flavor! The announcer beckoned. Come up to Marlboro country. Right on cue, my father reached inside his gray flannel shirt pocket and pulled out his red and white box of Marlboros. He plucked one of his filtered cigarettes from the box and lit it with his scratched and dented silver cigarette lighter. For me, this was really living. Hanging out with my father and his buddies, watching gun smoke and drinking sweet orange soda. The night faded and time marched on. It was Wednesday. February 9th, 1966. Darkness still dominated the morning sky when my mother started screaming. My father woke up beside her and shook her out of her frightened sleep. Oh my God! Oh my God! My mother yelled. She threw back the covers and jumped from the bed. She ran into the adjoining room where my two twin sisters were sleeping. She checked them both thoroughly. Thank God, she muttered. My babies are all right. She breathed and extended a sigh of relief. With my father standing behind her, 
My mother turned away from the two cribs. She flicked off the light switch, and Daddy followed her back into their bedroom. They sat down on the edge of their double bed, and I could hear her recounting the horrifying dream from my room next to theirs. There was this carriage, she said solemnly. Her eyes were glazed and started staring unfocused across the room. It was a big double carriage, and, and I was taking the twins out for a walk. It was a sunny day, but the sun was so bright I couldn't hardly see. And then out of nowhere, it started raining. I tried to close the top of the twins' carriage, but it just flew away. I started pushing the carriage faster and faster, but it started filling up with water. My babies were drowning. The faster I pushed, the more water came in. Their carriage was filling up. I looked over for something to cover us, but all I could see was an open field. I kept running and running, but I couldn't save my babies. One of them drowned, Bill. One of them drowned. One of them drowned, my mother said again, choking on her own words. Oh, don't worry about them babies, girl. Them babies are all right. Yeah, but that dream seems so real. Daddy chuckled and glanced casually at the clock. Look like it's time for me to get up anyway, he said. He kissed my mother on the forehead and rose from the bed. Why don't you go on back to sleep? It'll be all right, he comforted. But my mother couldn't go back to sleep. She had an eerie and overwhelming premonition that everything would not be all right. My father walked across the hall into the small bathroom. He washed up, dressed in his work clothes, and made his way down the long flight of wooden stairs. He boiled a small amount of water and poured it into his large white ceramic cup. He began stirring in the instant coffee with milk and two heaping spoons of sugar. Soon, you could hear his friend Jimmy drive up outside in the morning stillness. He began honking his horn in the cold morning air. Daddy took a quick sip of his hot coffee and burned his lip. Damn, he said as he yelled to my mother and dashed out the door. Bye, baby. Mommy was still sitting up in bed, wide awake. She heard Daddy say goodbye, and she heard Jimmy's car drive away. But she apparently couldn't get that dream off her mind. She talked about it all day long. Later that morning, I could hear her recounting her horrifying dream to Aunt Sandra. They had been best friends since high school. Now, Aunt Sandra and Uncle Bebop lived only a few feet away in the adjoining building. And the twins was drowning, my mother exclaimed. My aunt must have expressed surprise because my mother yelled back, Yeah, child, I'm telling you, that dream was real. My mother nervously checked the twins continuously that day. It wasn't until that evening that she stopped repeating her dream to whoever would listen. When my father left for work that morning, he remembered that my mother was quite upset. But by the time he came home that night, she seemed back to her old self. Did you have a good day, girl? My father asked when he walked in the door. As long as my babies was all right, my day was fine. My father smiled. That was the Anna he knew. It was early that Saturday morning, February 12th, 1966. I was stretched out on the living room floor watching Bugs Bunny terrorize Elmer Fudd on Saturday cartoons. My little sisters were playing quietly upstairs in their bedroom. Daddy was standing over the sink in the kitchen, cleaning his knives, preparing to go fishing. Suddenly, the piece was invaded by a blood-curdling scream from the top of the stairs. Mommy began shouting at the top of her lungs. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Daddy stopped suddenly and twisted his head toward the stairs. Startled, I rose up quickly and turned completely around from the spot in the middle of the floor. Before Daddy could reach the stairs, my mother had already been down them and was still screaming, My baby! My baby! She rushed past my father with my two-month-old sister Marlene clutched in her arms. The baby's head was hanging limp from her forearm. My mother's face was buried in the baby's chest. She was sobbing uncontrollably. My eyes followed her as she rushed toward me. She sat down on the sofa next to me and cried the kind of tears that would melt the coldest heart. Daddy's light brown face turned bright red. What's wrong? He pleaded, Anna, what's wrong? My eyes were as big as saucers. I was frightened, 
My mother was screaming so loud. Anna, what's wrong? Daddy begged again. In between the penetrating rhythm of her gloomy bellowing, my mother wailed, My baby's dead! What? My father snapped with a strained, disbelieving look on his face. My baby's dead! My mother moaned. Daddy reached over to try and take little Marlene from my mother. She resisted fiercely and tugged the baby toward her chest, still crying and rocking back and forth. My baby, my baby. My mother was in agony. That morning was paralyzingly sad. Daddy knew there was no use trying to force the lifeless baby from my mother's arms. He rushed to the telephone and called Aunt Sandra across the courtyard. Sandra, he barked after hearing one ring of the phone. One of the twins done died and Anna won't let her go. What? And Sandra snapped so loudly I could hear her from where I was sitting. She hung up the telephone as Daddy was still explaining. You could hear the phone click across the room. I was still sitting frozen in the same position on the floor. My young eyes stretched wide open, my heart pounding in my chest. Suddenly, Aunt Sandra came rushing in the unblocked front door, her pink bathrobe stuffed underneath her thick black wool dress coat with a furry collar. I turned in the direction of the cool burst of wind that followed her in. Aunt Sandra dashed past me like I was invisible and sat down close to my mother on the couch. Daddy stood helplessly over them both, waiting for his opportunity to help. Suddenly, my two six- and seven-year-old sisters, Anna and Brenda, appeared from upstairs. Seeing my mother crying so intensely made them begin to cry. Then, like a choir, all four females were crying together while my father and I stood by in shock. Ironically, Darlene, my other twin sister, slept peacefully in her crib upstairs, while we all lost tiny pieces of ourselves mourning Marlene's passing. Aunt Sandra reached her arm around my mother, who was still sobbing. The wailing chorus of my aunt, my mother, and sisters sounded like death itself. It's gonna be all right, girl. It's gonna be all right. And Sandra joined in the rhythm of my mother's rocking motion. After several more sweeps back and forth, Aunt Sandra reached for my sister. Let me have her, Anna. It's gonna be all right. My mother's tears began to soak the baby's tiny pajamas. She jerked away from her best friend, Sandra. No! She snapped, still sobbing. Anna, you gotta let her go, girl! And Sandra's face showed intense pain. Her words choked in her throat as she fought back more of her own tears. My father and I looked on in awe. After several more attempts to free Marlene from my mother's desperate grip, and Sandra beckoned to my father. Call my mama, KI-5-1212. Daddy did as Aunt Sandra asked, and with the apparent speed of light, Mrs. Atkins appeared at the door. More than an hour had passed, and my mother still wouldn't let go of her deceased child. Finally, after continuous coaxing and pleading, Mrs. Atkins, whom my mother revered, convinced her to release the baby only to her. Before long, the entire apartment was filled with people, all of them trying to add their own level of comfort to my mother. And Sandra scooped up my sisters, Anna, Brenda, and Darlene, and herded them to her apartment. Meanwhile, the church congregation hovered over my mother like they were bees, and she was honey, praying in a loud tone and mumbling in a weird, rapid pattern. Somehow, nobody seemed to notice me in my blank, hollow stare. I simply faded into my corner bedroom upstairs. When the apartment grew full of people, mostly women, with the exception of Reverend Brown, my father seemed as invisible to them as I was. Soon, he just resigned himself silently to the protocol and disappeared from the house. That afternoon and evening just dragged on like a slow, solemn death march. Sadness draped over that corner apartment like a thick black blanket over an unsuspecting stack of human bodies, still breathing but nevertheless pronounced dead. After medical examination, it was determined that two-month-old Marlene had died from sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. It was also determined that there was nothing anyone could have done about it. Nevertheless, my mother was crushed, knowing Wishing, hoping she could have prevented it, she suffered. 
Two days later, the day of the burial, mourners filed by our apartment like a dignitary had died. It seemed that such a young life lost appealed to the senses of a wide range of my mother and father's family and friends. My mother cried every day for a long time. After she was stable enough to bring Darlene home from Aunt Sandra's, she never let her baby out of her sight. Eventually, we all got through the tragedy, but it left a lingering sadness in the air. Little Marlene's death put an increasing strain on my mother and father's roller coaster marriage. They began to argue continually about what seemed like insignificant issues at the time. Mommy told Daddy he drank too much. He gradually went from one day a week to two or three. Daddy said Mommy fussed too much. Every day when he walked in the door, she was on him like stink on chillins. They began to seem like two loud trains passing in the night. Though they were married for seven years and had us five children between them, their union was falling apart at the seams. Daddy had decided he had enough. He was moving back to North Carolina alone. It was Friday, March 11th, 1966. My father walked in quietly that evening from his job at the rubber factory. He had a glum look on his face. He took off his short wool jacket and dark checkered cap and slumped down on the couch. His jacket and cap were resting on his lap. My mother heard him come in and came rushing into the living room. Bill, did you get paid today? She barked. Annie, you know I always get paid on Friday, he answered with very little emotion. Don't get smart, my mother barked. Anna, don't start already, my father said pleadingly. You don't tell me what to do, my mother snapped. I'm three times seven plus, nigga. You don't tell me what to do. My father rolled his eyes and head around and shook it while looking toward the ceiling. My mother was still yelling indiscriminately. Suddenly, my father looked down toward the floor and announced what it appeared he had been thinking about all day. I'm going home, girl. I can't stay with you no more. Well, go on home then, nigga. Don't nobody need your ass. You stupid as hell anyway. With that, my father sucked his lips tight together and rose slowly from his seat. He took his jacket and cap and draped them over the corner of the couch. He reached into his pocket and took out all the money he had. He counted out a portion and handed the rest to my mother. She snatched it aggressively from his hand. I'm going home in the morning, my father said quietly. He reached gently for his cap and coat. My mother was quiet now. My father buttoned his last button and opened the front door. I'll be back later, he said, pulling the door closed behind him. My mother just watched the door close without speaking. She stood there staring at the door with a look that could kill a corpse. My father breathed a lengthy sigh of relief as he walked briskly toward his favorite place for peace, Rosso's Bar. By the time he walked in the door, threw his hat and coat in the corner and had his first drink, he had nearly forgotten he had troubles. He started talking and laughing like it was a holiday. You could tell when my father was getting lit because he started turning that characteristic cherry red color. Before you knew it, he began telling one of his patented fish stories to the crowded bar. When he finished his tale, a stern voice broke through the roar of howling laughter. A fisherman always sees another fisherman from afar. That ain't nothing, a voice said. I can top that. My father looked over his shoulder. The laughter stopped. Suddenly, a man walked over from the corner of the bar. He was a regally handsome man, about six feet tall. He had salt and pepper gray hair. His skin was milk chocolate brown. He was wearing work clothes like most everyone else in the bar, and he was smiling that happy, drunk man smile. The Grosso's bar crowd, always anxious to hear a real good story, listened intently. The man's name was Harry Wade. By the time he finished his story, he and my father were shaking hands, slapping each other's backs, and calling each other by their first names. The rest of the men in the bar got a tremendous kick out of the stories. Laughter filled every corner of the room. The atmosphere in the Grosso's bar that night took on a bright, glowing orange and purple color. 
The black cloud that had followed my father there was gone. Before long, he and his new acquaintance, Harry Wade, had planned to go fishing together the very next morning. They planned a father and son gathering, so Daddy agreed to bring me along. When he left Grosso's bar that night, he was smiling. The big smile was still there when he walked in the front door of the familiar corner apartment. He was home earlier than my mother expected. When she saw the door open, she glanced quickly away from the large black and white console television with the scratch wooden cabinet. My father walked purposely past my mother, who was sitting alone in the living room on the corner of the square sofa with the beige bedspread covering it completely. He made a beeline to the pantry to organize his precious fishing gear. He loved the idle peacefulness of fishing more than anything else he could imagine. One of my mother's constant complaints was that he loved fishing too much. He always said that he would rather fish than eat. My mother could hear my father fumbling around in the pantry. Suddenly, the shuffling noise stopped and Daddy appeared from around the corner. Anna, I'm going fishing tomorrow with this fella Harry Wade I met tonight. We supposed to take our boys. I'm going to take Roger. No, you ain't. No, you ain't neither. My mother barked. My father's face dropped. A disappointed frown came to his brow. Roger needs a haircut, my mother announced. I'm taking him to barbershop tomorrow. My father tilted his head slightly and looked at my mother. He looked bewildered. He turned abruptly toward the stairs and went off to bed. All right, Anna, he said, while walking and facing the opposite direction. My mother obviously felt a sense of victory. She knew she had no intention of going to any barbershop. She just couldn't let my father have this one. She was determined to make the point that she was running the show. My father climbed out of his clothes and washed his hands and face. He walked into the bedroom and was asleep before his head hit the pillow. Morning came quickly. As always, my father awakened about five o'clock that morning. My mother still slept while daddy dressed quickly and gathered his gear. Her eyes popped open when she heard him moving around downstairs in the kitchen. She looked around once in the bedroom and her eyes closed again. Soon, she heard the front door close. Daddy had left that morning without saying goodbye. It was Saturday, March 12, 1966. My mother stared intently at her three-month-old baby when she went in to check her that morning. She began gazing out into space. It was one month ago today that she had walked into my sister's room to find one of her babies dead in the crib. My father met Harry Wade that morning at his apartment across the courtyard as planned. He knocked gently and Harry opened his front door. He greeted my father with a big smile and firm handshake. It was quiet that morning. Harry's wife was standing at the bottom of the stairs, a very attractive, thin, dark-skinned woman. She waved to my father and said a whispering hello. Hi. Then she made her way back up the stairs. Except for one, the rest of Harry's children were sleeping. His oldest son, Harry Jr., a 14-year-old high school sophomore, was poised and ready for the trip. He was still wiping the sleep from his eyes as he walked over to greet my father. Bill, this is my son, Harry Jr. Jr., say good morning to Mr. Hamilton. Harry Sr. instructed. Good morning, Mr. Hamilton, he said quietly. Morning, Harry, my father answered with a smile and a handshake. Harry Sr. continued the introductions. Bill, meet my nephew, William. His father couldn't make it today, but you'll meet him next time. My father reached out to shake the mature 12-year-old's hand. Morning, William, he said. Morning, Mr. Hamilton, he replied. My boy couldn't come neither, my father said, looking toward Harry Sr. His mother had to take him to get a haircut today. Harry nodded and added that it was okay. Maybe he could come next time. He reminded my father that the four of them took this trip regularly. He assured him again that he hadn't ever seen such good fishing. They were all anxious to get started on the hour-long drive to Lambertville, so they filed out of Harry's apartment to his station wagon out front. The engine was running, already warmed up and ready. They all stuffed their equipment into the rear of Harry's wagon. His sturdy aluminum rowboat was tied to the top. With my father riding shotgun, they drove off in the direction of what Harry Sr. called the best fishing he'd ever seen. I woke up later that morning, as I always did on Saturday. I turned on the television to watch my favorite cartoons. My mother began moving diligently around the apartment, sorting clothes for laundry and catching up on duties from earlier in the week. 
The sun came out early that Saturday, and it looked like it would be a clear and sunny day. My mother drew upon all the shades and welcomed in the cool, gentle breeze through the thin rectangular window of the apartment. Then she sat down to take a load off at the kitchen table. It got to be around 12 o'clock. Eventually, my Saturday morning cartoon trance was broken. I hopped up from my favorite spot on the living room floor. Ma, can I go outside? I asked. Go on, my mother answered. I bounced to the close closet to grab my coat. My body had grown now and I was large for my age. In fact, I had gotten quite fleshy from those many months of inactivity and confinement. But playing in the open air hadn't bothered my health in many months. Though the hospital experiences remained vivid in my memory, my one-sided vision served as a constant reminder that I would have to work a little harder than most to keep my physical and my emotional balance. But I still just wanted to play and have fun like all the other kids. If this was my life, then I was definitely resigned to making it the best it could be. Though sometimes I woke up in the middle of the night thinking I was still in the hospital. The most unlikely things reminded me of the confinement and how empty it felt. Every chance I got, I wanted to be outside, making up for that lost time. Even with my right eyelid still hanging at half-mast, nothing seemed to slow my enthusiasm. When the sun hurt my eye till I couldn't hardly keep it open, I just squeezed it shut and kept on going. I was determined to work with what I had. Even at the age of nine years old, I had started looking forward. I realized I had much to be thankful for. After all, I still had one eye left. Roger! Roger! My head tilted upward when I heard my mother's voice calling in the open courtyard. I ran to our corner apartment and jerked open the door. You call me, Ma? Yes, Roger, my mother replied gently. You see those ladies outside? My mother directed my attention toward the sunny courtyard where a crowd of ladies from the neighborhood had gathered. You go out there and ask them what's going on. Tell them I don't mean to be nosy or nothing, but I want to know what's going on. My mother smiled a devilish smile and guided me gently by my shoulders toward the door. I did as she instructed. I went to the lady I knew best, my mother's friend April, who lived in the apartment next door. Miss April to me. Excuse me, Miss April, I said politely. My mother says she don't mean to be nosy, but she wants to know what's going on. The large, round woman with cream-colored skin turned toward me with a troubled look on her distinctively pretty face. She was wearing a brightly colored house dress and slippers. Baby, tell your mama the police think that Harry Wade and his son drowned in the river today. They think his boat turned over. They can't find him nowhere. I stored the information and walked nonchalantly back into our apartment to relay to my mother what I thought was random information. Ma, Miss April said that Mr. Waite's boat turned over and the police can't find him. Suddenly, my mother started screaming, Oh no! Oh no! Her yelling startled me. I stared at her with a wrinkled frown on my brow. Roger! She yelled in horror. Your father was with them! She dashed to the front door and called frantically to her friend April. Girl, Bill was with them! Miss April turned completely around. She seemed confused. Child, your husband don't fish with Harry Wade, do he? Yes, my mother retorted. They decided last night at the last minute Bill is with them! For me, that moment was permanently frozen in time. Miss April rushed over to our front door and began her frantic interaction with my mother. Then, like the force and velocity of a large truck rolling downhill, everything shifted gears and started happening very fast. It seemed like our apartment was under siege. Our telephone started ringing off the hook, and in an instant, the atmosphere became ominous and hysterical. Soon, an unsmiling, ununiformed New Jersey state trooper with shoes as shiny as glass was sitting with my mother at our kitchen table. He looked as large as I'd imagined a grizzly bear would. The flashing lights of awareness suddenly popped on inside my head. Somehow, I knew I could never again hide behind the safety of childhood. My life changed that day. A little of my innocence faded, and things that once seemed certain were no longer. Many of the things that happened for me from that point and for years to come seemed scripted, as though I had lived them before. The Wade family across the street, whom I had never met before then, suddenly became connected to our family by fate. And the questions, all those unanswered questions, started forming in my head and falling from my mouth. Ma, is Daddy dead? Is he coming home?
Did he get drowned? Sit down somewhere and stay out the way, she yelled, without answering any of the questions that she obviously wanted answers to herself. The tension she felt was written all over her face. Had this man, Harry Wade, actually drowned? Or was he just missing? Did the boat really capsize? Were my father and his new friends really even in the boat? Ultimately, of the many unanswered questions, to me the only important question was, did this mean my father wasn't ever coming back? Did this mean my father might be dead? My mother was obviously guilt-ridden over the ugly things she had said to him the night before. And what about the fact that I was supposed to have gone too? She prayed aloud that she would find out he was alive. Please, God, don't let him be dead. She mumbled constantly while preparing to ride with the policeman to the site where the men's capsized boat was found along the shore of the cold, deep, dark Raritan River. It was only one month earlier that death had visited and taken Marlene. Now, the putrid, distinctive smell of death was in the air again. My mother immediately called Aunt Sandra. Suddenly, she was walking in the front door as my mother was walking out with a huge state trooper. The two longtime friends looked deeply into each other's eyes. There wasn't much to say. Certainly, they hoped for the best, but their silence suggested they both feared the worst. I'll be back as soon as I can, girl. My mother shook her head side to side in slow motion as she walked away with the unemotional policeman. My mother met Mrs. Wade at the riverbank. The two frightened women talked, the kind of talk to each other that only they would understand, and they sat there idly as they waited that afternoon for any sign of their husbands. Multiple police cars, two ambulances, a huge tow truck, newspaper and radio reporters, frogmen popping up and down in the murky water, and a host of onlookers stuffed the clearing at the foggy river's edge. The scene was surreal, as every one of those people seemed to be players in a drama that was reshaping our lives. The Hamilton-Wade saga had officially begun. The authorities dragged that river all day. The only sign of the man was Harry Wade's sturdy aluminum rowboat and their prized fishing equipment. The gloom hung so heavy in the air, it was like a curtain. No one could move without sliding the thick, dark barrier away from their faces. If for no reason but to hear a caring voice, my mother called Aunt Sandra several times back at home during the course of the day. With each call, Aunt Sandra said my mother's voice sounded more and more distant. Daylight slipped away, and my mother's final call to her anxious sister-in-law was to inform her that the police were forced by darkness to discontinue their search. Aunt Sandra's face dropped to the floor when my mother told her what the scattered frogman had already finally found. The only trace they could find of the four fishermen that brisk afternoon was my father's checkered cap. The cap he never left home without. Chances were, wherever he was, he hadn't removed his cap by choice. The coins fell into the belly of the payphone as my mother gently placed the cold receiver down on the hook. She began walking listlessly back to the commotion on the riverbank, when suddenly an aggressive press photographer's flashbulb began popping and sparkling. There was a shrill, frightening scream, my mother said later, when she recounted the unnerving experience that she burst through the crowd of police and newspaper reporters, only to look up and see at the other end of the powerful searchlight the soaking, weathered body of a dead teenager dangling from the chain attached to the wench which hovered over the river bank. Mrs. Wade's heart seemed to explode into figurative bloody pieces. It was Mrs. Wade's oldest son, Harry Jr. In my mother's painful recollection, she said you could almost see the fleshy fragments of love and blood and grief bursting from Mrs. Wade's chest. Sadness just hung there with the teenager's body like the thick fog in the stiff, cold air. My mother's mouth dropped open and her eyes followed the dangling young body to the shore. At that moment, she said she knew the handwriting was on the wall. The outcome appeared obvious. That bill was out there somewhere, too, floating in the devil's darkness. Mrs. Wade became hysterical. She was carried moaning and wailing into the back of the ambulance parked nearby. 
My mother began to cry silently. Her eyes followed her neighbor into the red and white medical station wagon. The large state trooper walks over and gently led my mother to the police car. She was still whimpering as she clutched daddy's wet cap tightly in her hands. The courteous trooper opened her car door first and she slumped down into the front seat. He entered on the driver's side and quickly turned the heater on full blast. It was a cold night. The sound of the police radio disappeared as my distraught mother and the trooper took off and drove in the direction of home. Willie Hamilton's wife looked desperately out the police car window at the passing scenery. It was a long, quiet drive back to the Parkside projects. Finally, the squeak of the patrol vehicle's brakes eased to a halt in front of our apartment. And Sandra peeked through the narrow window when she heard the car pull up. My mother sat there still, as if she knew that once she slid out of the safety of the trooper's vehicle, her life would never be the same. My husband's dead, my mother said solemnly to the caring policeman. Don't give up hope, the officer responded quietly. We'll all do our best to find them, he added. Thank you, she said quietly. Certainly, ma'am, the trooper answered. My mother climbed listlessly from the police car. She closed the heavy door and began walking very slowly. When she reached the front door of our apartment building, she looked back once over her shoulder and pushed open our front door. My father's familiar cap was now dangling loosely from her fingertips as she sauntered into the door that spooky evening. By the time the news spread throughout the Parkside housing project, there were enough tears to flood the streets. Franklin High School, where the popular teenagers attended school, offered a day of mourning. Everyone seemed to relate to the pain our families were feeling, and there was a public outcry to help us cope. It was an obviously gruesome night for my mother, but I shared the nerve-wracking suspense as I agonized silently in my room. My mother kept her distance from me that night, but I stayed awake all night wondering, is my daddy ever coming home? That night seemed to drag on so long. It was so confusing, so desperate, so lonely. I kept seeing daddy's face in my mind. He was smiling. The morning light finally came, peeking through our anguished darkness. My mother couldn't bear to take that drive back to Lambertville the next morning, so my Uncle Bebop went considerably in her place. When the telephone rang early that quiet Sunday morning, everyone in the house was startled. And Sandra, Uncle Bebop's wife, is my mother's very best friend. They were both lying on opposite sides of the couch, and Aunt Sandra nearly jumps out of her skin when the phone rings, but my mother was wide awake. She rises and creeps to the telephone on the kitchen counter like it will bite her if she isn't careful. She reaches for the phone and answers apprehensively. Hello? It was my uncle on the other end of the line calling to confirm what somehow my mother already knew, that my father was dead. Uncle Bebop greeted my mother solemnly. Hey, sis, the familiar voice offers. Hello, Bebop. She replied, well, it's definitely him, sis. I'm looking at him right now. He looks just like he's sleeping. Sorry, girl. He's gone. After a deafening moment of silence, my mother replies, muffled, sobbing, and strangled speech. Thank you, Bebop. Like the teenager before him, they had found his bloated, lifeless body floating in the choppy waters of the Raritan River. My mother hung up the telephone in slow motion without speaking. She stared quietly at the wall. It was over. Bill was gone. And Sandra walked over to comfort her. They both stood there crying together. It was three weeks before they found Harry Wade and his nephew, William, like an overzealous blood transfusion, those 20-some days sucked the life from that community. Each day there was a report on the radio, and each day everyone longed for it all to be over. It just kept dragging and dragging on. This thing chased us like a ghost in a nightmare. 
No matter how hard we tried to run, our feet just wouldn't move. My world seemed to move in slow motion now. No desire for cartoons and playing with my toy trucks. I just waited silently, like the behaved little boy I was. Not knowing what to think, what to expect next, or which way to go. I just waited. The news media capitalized on the powerful story. The newspapers filed a detailed report with all the men surviving children's names. The Wade family had seven kids, four boys and three girls. Of course, my family had me and my now three sisters. The local AM radio station, after providing continuous updates and pulling on the heartstrings of the listeners, ultimately started a memorial fund, aptly named the Hamilton Wade Fund. The school system made unusual allowances. Certainly, I was in as much pain as my mother was, but it felt like I was kept at arm's reach by my mommy and the other adults. It was apparent that nobody knew quite what to say or how to say it. While this was a passionate, hard-working group of people, they didn't seem to have a handle on the psychological and emotional quandary that we're all in. It was all too much, too fast. They responded to this gruesome turn of events in the best way they could. However, I had lost my best friend. I didn't know it then, but there may never be another like him in my life. And my mother, as caring as she could be toward me through all my illness and need, she could not see me standing there beside her anymore. Something had changed. Two days later, the day of the wake, I was stuffed into a black suit, white shirt, and clip-on tie, and propped in front of what was once my father to view him. You would think that I would have cried and moaned and wailed for this familiar man who gave me my sense of my male self, or run up to him and grasp his course with longing and desperation, but I did not. No tears, no wailing, no father-son commotion. I just sat there, like I was told. I stayed out of grown folks' business, like they insisted. I found the corners and the shadows and the places where I would not be a nuisance. I sat when they said sit, I stood when they said stand. And I watched as my mother, Aunt Sandra, and her daughters, and my sisters all huddled together crying. Paradoxically, I sat straight up like the men around me, waiting for the next move. It was implied and insisted that I should be a big boy, and I was. Frankly, as I reflect, I think I was in shock. My emotions were frozen and locked until I could attend to them later in my life, if at all. Normal was now abnormal, and regular was now irregular. Following the morbid ceremony, we came home to an apartment that grew full with unfamiliar people. The women seemed very comfortable attending to my sisters, while the best the men could do was stand unemotionally in the background. Little did I know it then, that this trend would become the way I was going to be raised from here, boys on one side, girls on the other. The funeral followed the next day, and like the night before, I was standing nose to nose in front of some obviously caring man whom I had never met. Someone thought to bring the real thing, and he neatly tied my first black necktie, then guided me gently into the huge black limousine. When the procession reached the gigantic doors of the First Baptist Church, I could feel the cold chill of death's unyielding wind. I still had not shed a tear for my father. Everything happened so fast, and since nobody talked to me, I truly felt like I wasn't supposed to cry. I was still being a big boy. Everybody said, big boys don't cry. I thought I was supposed to act like the men I saw all around me. They didn't cry. And so, here's what it comes down to. This is certainly a powerful story about challenge and loss. And the reason I presented it was to assure you, the listener, if you're going through it, and you've been through it, just know that I have too. And when I reference motivational mastery and being your best self, and charting your course to greatness, and turning pain into progress, I have done it. It took me many years to come to terms with this series of events, but I rise. I lifted myself to new heights because I learned to believe in myself and see the world as a good place. So from this episode forward, we will jump back on, 
get back in, and emphasize the amazing skills, talents, and drive that we human beings are blessed with, and get back to business. The business of being our best self, doing our best work, and making our own individual efforts to change the world and smile in the process. Enjoy your life. Don't take it for granted. And celebrate the ones you love and tell them so. The time is now. There'll be days like this When there's no one complaining There'll be days like this When everything falls into place Like the flick of a switch Oh, my mama told me There'll be days like this When you don't need to worry There'll be days like this When the one's in a hurry There'll be days like this When all the parts of the puzzle Start to look like they should Then I must remember There'll be days like this When you don't need an answer There'll be days like this When you don't need a chance There'll be days like this When you don't get the trade There'll be days like this Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss in life is what dies inside us while we live. Norman Cousins. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of Round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, Time!